Welcome to the School of Travels podcast. I'm your host, Becky Gillespie, and each week I bring you stories of how travel can truly change your life if you take the chance to get out on the road and step out of your comfort zone. My guests also share travel tips and lessons they've learned along the way, which I hope inspires you to let travel be your teacher. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the School of Travels podcast. This week, I'm bringing you a solo episode for part two of episode 37, which focused on off-the-beaten-path travel tips and recommendations in Japan. If you haven't listened to that episode, go back and check it out, listeners. Kiara Tertsuolo and I go over a lot of places you've likely never heard of, and I honestly would recommend the places we mentioned last week. If you're really focused on a specific destination that Kiara mentioned, like Sado Island, or I mentioned the Ogasawara Islands, which are only accessible by a 24-hour boat one way, so look those up. But what I want to bring you this week is a top 10 places in Japan list. I'm excited because this is going to be the very first top 10 list we've ever done on the School of Travels podcast. And these are honestly the places if someone asked me, Becky, you've spent 16 years in Japan, you've been to Tokyo, Kyoto, Osaka, Hiroshima. If you've been to all those places, where would you go? What are your top 10 favorite places? These are honestly it. And I'm so excited to bring them to you. And they're really different from each other. We're going to start with number 10 and we're going to work our way to number one. Along the way, I'm going to explain where these places are, how you get there, a little bit about the background of each place, and especially what I loved about it. Also, I do encourage you, of course, to do your own Google research about these places, find your own accommodation. If there's a very particular particular accommodation that I absolutely recommend, I will mention it, but really everybody's got their own preferences and their own budgets. So keep that in mind. I really just want to put these places on your radar and really give you the very best experience you can have in Japan. This is a magical country, as we said in our last episode. And after this top 10 list is done, I have no doubt in my mind, you're going to get to one of these places eventually because they're so amazing. All right. So without further ado, let's start with number 10, Nagasaki. Nagasaki, particularly the island of Gunkanjima. All right. So first of all, all of us have no doubt heard the name Nagasaki because it was unfortunately one of two cities where the atomic bomb was dropped during World War II. The bomb dropped in Nagasaki on August 9th, 1945. But the history of Nagasaki is a long and interesting one. It started out as just a little fishing village on the harbor. But in 1543, Portuguese explorers made contact and started doing some trading. And eventually Nagasaki became the only port open to foreign traders, especially the Portuguese and the Dutch, from the 1500s through the 1800s. Nagasaki also has an interesting history with Christianity, which came to Nagasaki in the middle of the 1500s from Spanish Jesuit priests. Over the latter part of the 16th century, the influence of these Jesuits grew in Nagasaki, and eventually there was even an attempt to take over the administrative power in the city by these priests. And basically within Japan, Christianity, especially in the Nagasaki region, was growing, but Japan 
did not want a religion or any other outside groups gaining too much influence. Eventually, in 1614, Catholicism was banned in the country, and there was eventually in 1614, Catholicism was banned in the country. And there was a brutal campaign of persecution against all of these converts to Christianity across Kyushu and other parts of Japan. And many were killed and tortured, and they were forced to renounce their religion. For more on this part of Japanese history, you can actually watch Martin Scorsese's 2016 film called Silence. So it's even when you visit Nagasaki today, you can see these hidden Christian sites. And it's a really interesting and unique part of Japanese history because, as I've said there were not other parts of the country open to these outside, particularly Western influences. So when you visit Nagasaki, of course, the first thing to do is really visit the Peace Park and Atomic Bomb Museum. There's a lot to be learned from this terrible dark time in history. After you visit the Atomic Bomb Museum and the Peace Park. I would say the most interesting thing to see here is this boat tour, which will cost you around between 35 and 45 bucks. It's a 50 minute ride one way to an island that originally and officially is known as Hashima, but the nickname is Gunkanjima which means Battleship Island. This island first came to my attention in the 2012 film Skyfall, which is a James Bond movie. And there was this place in the movie where the villain was living. It was like his lair. And it was this crazy looking island with all of these abandoned buildings. And I later looked into this and found out like it was never actually filmed on Gunkanjima, but exterior overhead shots were filmed there. The actual island shots were filmed in a studio, but I was like, is that a real place? And if it is, I want to go check that out. And so finally, in 2016, I was able to go and check it out, and it's wild. So Gunkanjima is about 15 kilometers off the coast of Nagasaki, and until 1974, it was actually a coal mining community, and there were more than 5,000 residents who were living on this 150-meter-wide island, and it was 480 meters long. So that made it the highest population density in history at one point. So to be able to have so many people in such a small area, every piece of land on this island was built up. So the island started to look like a massive battleship, which is where it gets its nickname, Gunkanjima. The coal was first discovered on the island in 1810 by a feudal lord, and industrial mining began in the late 1800s, and the island was later purchased by Mitsubishi Corporation. The island was expanded as the production increased, and there became like large residential and industrial buildings and very high seawalls. The people who lived on the island were able to pretty much live a typical life. There were schools, restaurants, shops, one hospital, and even a public bath. So when you visit this island, uh, they show you a model of the island at one point and explain it. Now, when I went, it was all in Japanese. So you may want to bring someone who speaks Japanese with you, for example, a tour guide. Uh, there is some translation, but I would say if you can bring a Japanese friend, that would be ideal. And in 1974, the mine was closed and all the residents had to leave Gunkanjima and they abandoned everything on the island. 
So over the years, all these typhoons and high winds and really rough waves are hitting against the seawall. And when you visit the island now, you can see the really tough toll that weather is taking on the island. There's a lot of erosion, but it also makes the island have this really eerie and kind of haunting atmosphere with all these decaying buildings. Due to the danger of collapsing structures, Gunkanjima was actually closed to the public for many years, and the only way you could see it was from a boat on a sightseeing cruise. But in 2009, there was a dock constructed that made it possible for tours to actually get onto the island, and the way it works now is you're taken to three different observation decks, and you're only seeing a small part of the southern end of the island. You spend about 45 minutes on the island, and you have to stay with your tour guide the whole time. I went to Gukanjima with two friends, Robbie and Tam, who also lived in Japan. And <laughs> my friend Tam, she loved visiting abandoned buildings and theme parks, hospitals, whatever she can get her hands on in Japan. There's actually a whole culture around this. And I remember that she tried to leave the tour and was trying to like climb over some buildings or get to a point where she could access the abandoned buildings on her own and take some photos and we we really tried but we did not even get to that point people were watching closely so don't think you can do the same because you won't you're too isolated in the group and it would i have to say it would be really scary to spend a night on that island alone oh but it's it's really cool to look at it's definitely a unique place in the world so to get to Nagasaki, I think the easiest way is to take a flight from Tokyo, probably set you back about $250 return, and the flight is about an hour and 45 minutes. You can get to Nagasaki by train, but even from Shinosaka, if you take the bullet train to the city of Hakata, which is in Fukuoka, and then get another high-speed train to Nagasaki, that is still a four-hour and 15-minute trip one way. So really, either take a flight from Tokyo or from Osaka. Okay, let's move on to number nine. This really is one of my personal favorites. I've been here three times, and I keep discovering more every time I go. It is the city of Karuizawa in Nagano, Japan. Karuizawa is quite close to Tokyo. You can reach it in an hour and 10 minutes on the bullet train. And it's kind of like the Hamptons if Tokyo is New York City. Even the Imperial family loves it. One of the more momentous moments in Karuizawa's history was in 1958 when former Emperor Akihito met his future wife Michiko on the tennis court. Celebrities love it. Bill Gates has a house there, just to give you an idea. And it was also very popular with John Lennon and Yoko Ono. They spent four summers there in the 1970s, and Yoko's family had a second home in Karuizawa, and they loved spending their time there with their son, Sean, at the Mampe Hotel. And they would stay in room 128, and this hotel is still around. So if you want to stay in room 128 yourself, go ahead, walk in the footsteps of John Lennon and Yoko. And I actually went to the Mampe Hotel in 2015. I sat in the lobby and ordered a royal milk tea, which was John Lennon's favorite drink there. And he spent a lot of time in that lobby. And so I thought, wouldn't it be cool to go to the Mampe? And it's a very 
beautiful place because it's in the forest. It is a quite old hotel, so you feel like this sense of, I don't know, 1950s, 1960s era history when you walk in, but it, it's really cool. It has a great vibe to it. In Karuizawa itself, there's quite a bit to do. So there's an area called Kyu Karuizawa, which has a lot of the more traditional shops on the main street, including French Bakery, which is another place that John Lennon frequented. And there's a, a place called Stone Church, which if you Google this, Stone Church Karuizawa, it is gorgeous. So many people have their weddings there and certain times of the week you can go in and visit yourself. Uh, it would make for a great Instagram photo. Uh, I love it. It's beautiful. There's also an area called the Haruhide Terrace, which is basically a bunch of shops they've built right next to a stream a little bit farther up into the forest. Uh, and it's very close to the Hoshinoya Hotel, which is a five-star resort you can stay at. Very nice public bath facility there. If you're staying there, you can take a bath under the stars. It's just amazing. There's the Prince Hotel from which you can access ski runs and uh, it's cooler in the summer. You can go hiking. There's a waterfall and has really great restaurants. Two of them I'll mention. Enboca is a great pizza restaurant there. If you find yourself staying, it's delicious. And oh, my personal favorite is actually in a hotel called the Boleston Court. The restaurant's name is Yu Kawatan. And this, this was one of my unforgettable dining experiences of my life, which is funny because I never expected it to be. I was staying in an Airbnb for a couple of nights there and just looked up a restaurant to go to that night. And I called and they said, yeah, we're available tonight. And normally if they say that, you wouldn't think it's a very fancy restaurant or, you know, it's that exclusive. But my friend and I went and we were just blown away. It really was. And I will tell you, it's fine dining. It's really expensive. But the experience is unforgettable, and I think it's worth it. So they change the menu every season. And when we were there, it was spring. And I will never forget this. We went in for dinner and finished our meal, and it was beautiful. It's it's done in the French style, so you have amuse-bouche. Just the presentation is unbelievable. But the final part of the meal that I'll never forget was the dessert. So the waitress spoke perfect English. She was coming over and she was like, the chef here, he loves birdhouses. Do you see that birdhouse outside in the tree? And we were like, yeah. And she's like, we're going to present to you our own birdhouse. And the dessert was a birdhouse that you could open. And it had three levels of desserts inside the birdhouse. And when you were done, there were these little eggs that were edible. So it was all in the theme of a birdhouse. And then you could pick up the whole birdhouse and underneath was a hidden section with more eggs. And they were all edible, like as chocolate eggs. It was unbelievable. And so if you ever get a chance to go to Karuzawa, save some extra money. I honestly think that dinner costs $200 a person, just to give you a little idea of that. But it is incredible. And I, I had no idea a place like this was hiding in the forest, but there it is. So Karuizawa, it's magical. Let's move on to number eight. In a very different part of Japan, Ishigaki Island, 
Taketomi and Iriomote Islands. They're all in a group called the Yaiyama Islands in Okinawa, Japan. Okinawa, of course, must be accessed by plane from the mainland of Japan. It's about a two-hour flight, but Ishigaki would require a second flight from Naha, which is the main city on the main island of Okinawa. Or you can take a direct flight from Tokyo to Ishigaki. And I actually would recommend that especially if you don't have a lot of time. Honestly, while Naha is fantastic, it's full of life, it's got a lot of energy, there's a lot to see on the main island of Okinawa. Ishigaki, it's because it's more remote, it just feels like this true magical sense of nature with the sea and with the people. It's got some of the best scuba diving and snorkeling in the area. And from Ishigaki Island, you can take ferries to these other islands, including Taketomi, for which it's popular to rent bikes, bike around the small island. There's a beach there that is famous for having sand that is in the shape of stars. Honestly, when I went, I don't know if I quite got what they were talking about, but I think it is a thing and you'll see it all over the travel brochures as well. But I love renting a bike on Taketomi Island. There are these dog-like creatures that are called shisha that are on the roofs of all these houses on the island and it's just so cute. Now Iriamote is also accessible by ferry. I didn't spend any time there, but you can. It's famous for how wild the island is. It has a lot of mangrove forests. You can take kayaking adventures there. And we had like a five minute stop on the island as part of this tour. And I just remember getting off that boat, standing on this small dock and feeling like I saw so much wildlife just coming out of the jungle at me, you know, even for those five minutes that I thought, wow, it would be amazing to stay on this island and really get that feeling of being in the middle of nowhere in a jungle in Japan. I mean, who would have thought? So uh, check out Ishigaki Island. It's really a paradise down there, and there's a lot to do, especially if you're into scuba diving. Number seven is Kanazawa in Ishikawa Prefecture, Japan. In 2015, the Hokuriku Shinkansen, the same bullet train to get to Karuizawa, extended the line to Kanazawa. And this made getting to Kanazawa much easier than before. It probably also explains why I finally went to Kanazawa in 2017. It takes about two and a half hours one way on the bullet train to get there. And this is covered on the Japan Rail Pass. The first place to go if you only have a limited amount of time is what the Japanese call one of the three most beautiful gardens in Japan. And it is Ken Roku-en. Kenroku-en is just, if you've ever like had a thing for Japanese gardens, and especially the trees that grow in these gardens and the perfectly manicured landscaping, it's beautiful. If you want a sneak peek, of course, Google some images of Kenroku-en, but it is by far the number one attraction. And it's kind of most celebrated, it's like the most celebrated landscape garden in Japan and quite large, may I add. It's so impressive. Other things to see in Kanazawa include the Higashi Chaya district, cha coming from tea. So there's a lot of wonderful tea. Also, there's a temple there called Ninja Dera, which has like secret doors and traps. Also, there's Nagamachi, which is the former samurai district. There is also Kanazawa Castle, which is slowly being reconstructed, really beautiful, lots of cherry blossoms. My favorite, though, besides Kenroku-en, 
had to be the 21st century museum. Now, when you hear this, you're like, really? I've come to this city to feel the Japanese experience, but please do not miss the 21st century museum. It opened in 2004 and it's very close to Kenroku-en, so it would be easy to do them both on the same day. The layout of this museum is really cool. There's a whole section that is for free and then you pay more to access more of the museum on the perimeter. It was designed without a front or a back to discourage visitors from approaching it and also its art from only one direction. And I'd say the most famous attraction in this museum is Argentine artist Leandro Ehrlich's swimming pool. Unfortunately, to go inside the pool, it does require you to pay, but that you can go into the bottom of this pool and you can get a photo taken where you're in the pool, standing on the bottom, looking up at the water. And you can also look down into the water from the top. It's really cool. I would highly recommend this museum and I would highly recommend Kanazawa. Moving on to number six, the Kumano Kodo Pilgrimage Trail in Wakayama Prefecture. Okay, this I first have to say is not an easy journey. So give yourself plenty of time if you're gonna take this trip. You might wanna make it the sole focus of this particular trip to Japan. If from Tokyo, the best thing to do is probably take the bullet train to Shinosaka, which is about a two and a half hour journey. Then from Shinosaka, you would take a limited express train, which would also be covered on a Japan Rail Pass from Shinosaka to a station called Kitanabe. I've actually detailed my entire experience hiking the Kumano Kodo on my blog tokyobeki.com, which I don't think I've ever mentioned before on this podcast, but I have a lot of my old adventures still accessible on this blog, although I have not been updating it recently. Tokyobeki.com will tell you all the finer details you need to know about hiking the Kumano Kodo. I will tell you that the Kumano Kodo is one of only two World Heritage Pilgrimage Trails in the world. The other one being, I don't know if you can guess, but the Camino del Santiago in Spain. I didn't even know that until I reached Kitanabe Station and went to the tourist office to start my journey. Why did I love the Kumano Kodo? My inspiration for going on the trip started by seeing an Instagram photo of this place on the trail called Nachi Taisha. And this actually is a waterfall that is next to a pagoda. And I was just like, that is so beautiful. How have I never seen this before in Japan? They must be kind of off the beaten path. So I did some research and I looked further into it and realized that I didn't have to do the whole trail. I could do sections of it and you know keep it within 10 kilometers to like 15 kilometers a day and it would still be really enjoyable there were plenty of places to stay along the way I could stay at hotels or i found an airbnb for my second night and it was just wonderful my first night was in a hotel i had the proper ryokan experience which kiara and i talked about in the last episode and i had this beautiful dinner the staff were so friendly there was a public bath in the hotel and I felt so refreshed and ready to hike the next day. My my meals were basically pack lunches during the day that I would get from a convenience store or the hotel the day before and my dinners were in the hotels. Sometimes I skipped breakfast, sometimes I just brought something simple with me, but um 
I'd say the highlights were the this the the waterfalls which I did at the end that was like the last point of my trail. I finished near a station called Kikatsura and there's also a hotel which I didn't find until I finished the trail. Isn't that some of the best part of traveling by the way when you discover something like this? It's called Hotel Urashima and it was a 5-minute free ferry ride from Kikatsura station where my hotel was and I spent my last day on this trip. It was like from the 1970s or the it felt like it had been built in the 60s and had not been updated since then. I actually found some rotary phones in the hotel. They have a sheet of paper that you can take around with you and visit the four different baths in the hotel, including two of them that are cave hot springs that they've created with water like crashing into the sides of this hot spring and you look out and I was there in the during the daytime and there was nobody there. So I actually got cheeky and took out my camera and took some photos of the hot spring, which normally you would never be allowed to do because people are naked in there and they're going to get offended. But I was able to sneak some photos of these different cave hot springs and get my stamp in each different hot spring I went to. I think I made it to four of them that day. And I would love to do this whole experience all over again. It was so magical and it was pretty empty. I think I must have seen a total of 30 people the entire time I was on the trail. Number five, I actually haven't been to since 2006, and it is the number one skiing and snowboarding destination in Japan, if you can get there. It's called Niseko, and it is a three-hour bus ride from Sapporo on the island of Hokkaido in Japan. So the easiest way to get there would be to take a flight from Tokyo to Sapporo and then grab a bus that would be waiting for you to take you on your ski trip. So definitely this is a place to go in the winter. And it is amazing. What it's most famous for is the powder snow. A lot of fresh powder, a lot of consistent snow. I've heard that this is actually better for snowboarders than skiers. I went as a snowboarder and my memories of it were just, it's a massive complex. I think it's three or four hotels all connected. All the runs are all connected. So first of all, you can really get lost if you don't know what you're doing up there on the mountain. So I would encourage you to stick with friends if you can try to make plans for going down so that you don't get too separated from each other. Because if you take one way and your friend takes the other, I mean, you could be kilometers away from each other by the end. So and Niseko also has a large Australian community that heard about this village early on and started buying property there and setting up their own ski businesses. So there's a lot of English support in this village, more so than a lot of ski towns in Japan. And there's a lot of different types of restaurants now. Of course, amazing ramen and soba and udon, if you're looking for that, some of the best winter food, in my opinion, but also, you know, a wide variety of things to have and and places to go, which sometimes is great after a long day of snowboarding. You know, you want a lot of variety, but some of these towns are really small. So Niseko has a lot to offer in one place and you can meet some really amazing snowboarders there. And I really want to go back. I've only been one time. I do remember that there's a beautiful volcano in the background called Yote. And it's just great. You're skiing down this mountain and you just see this beautiful volcano that looks kind of like Mount Fuji in the background and you're just having the time of your life you're you're getting up at 6 a.m you're snowboarding all day 
you're having delicious ramen and you're going to a hot spring at the end of it. It's just fantastic. I love it. Ski in Japan at least once in your life. You will not regret it. Okay, number four is actually three places combined. And I combine them because I would say you should visit all three of them, but do it together as part of one trip because they're all within an hour from each other. The first place is Okayama, the capital of Okayama Prefecture in Japan, which will take you about three hours and 15 minutes one way. Once you reach Okayama, one of the first things you'll notice is that there is a statue of a little boy everywhere, and he is known as Momotaro, the peach boy who is the hero of one of Japan's most beloved folktales. Momotaro meets in his journey a monkey, a dog, and a pheasant. And so you'll also see statues of them. And they team up to fight the demons and help Momotaro return to his parents. When you get out of Okayama Station, you realize that the main street in Okayama is called Momotaro. You can do like what they call a stamp rally in Japan and go to different parts of the city and stamp your paper to show that you hit that Momotaro site. It's quite fun. It's always entertaining to see how Japan boosts tourism in the area. Okayama is also famous for its fruits, especially peaches and delicious grapes. So if you're there in the summer, you might be able to do some fruit picking. You might want to Google that and try that out. It will no doubt be one of the best food experiences you'll have in Okayama and maybe in Japan. Okayama also has one of the top three gardens. So just like Kanazawa at number seven that I talked about, there is another landscape garden in Okayama called Korokuen. And Korokuen is great because as you're walking around the garden, you get to see Okayama Castle in the background, which is also quite beautiful. So please don't visit Okayama without visiting Korokuen. And I would say after that, I mean, I used Okayama on my trip as my base. I stayed in a hotel there because I found Okayama had the widest variety of hotels for me to choose from to visit Kurashiki and then doing a day trip to Naoshima. But you can do this however you like. It might be really nice to stay in Kurashiki, which is a 15-minute train ride from Okayama on the local train. Kurashiki is a gorgeous town with a traditional district set up along a canal. You can take a ride on the canal and see these beautiful traditional buildings and also visit Ohara Art Museum, which is one of my favorite museums in Japan. It was started by a Japanese art collector who was fascinated by Western art at a time when there was no Western art in Japan. So he opened up the first Western art museum in Japan in this tiny town at that time called Kurashiki. Now when you visit, you will realize that there is quite a collection of Western artists in this seemingly average museum in Japan until you go inside and then you're like, this is amazing. There's Jackson Pollock, there's Monet. In fact, the art collector, in fact, the founder of the museum personally visited Monet and asked for a painting to take back to Japan. And Monet loved Japan and he agreed and they have their own Monet. Definitely visit this amazing art museum in Kadashiki and treat yourself to a parfait while you're there as well. Like I said, neighboring Okayama is famous for peaches and grapes, so there's a lot of tasty treats to be found in Kadashiki. 
Now, the most interesting part of all of this is Naoshima Island, but it's not easy to get to Naoshima. There's two different ways. You could take a flight from Tokyo to a city called Takamatsu, and then from Takamatsu, you would take an hour bus to the port. And then from Takamatsu Port, I think it's about 20 minutes on the ferry to Naoshima Island. That would be the quickest way to get there. Or if you want to get to Okayama, Kyo, or it's about an hour on the train from Okayama to a city called Uno. Once you get to Uno, you then walk five minutes to Uno Port and take a 20-minute ferry to Naoshima Island. That's what I did. I woke up early one morning in Okayama and I did a day trip to Naoshima. Again, I did that because Naoshima Island has very limited accommodations. I think there are some cool ones. I think you could stay in a yurt on Naoshima. I think they're still doing that, but it's only certain times of the year, uh, although double check that. If you've got the time, I would highly recommend staying on Naoshima Island for at least one night, if not two. That'll make exploring the island that much easier and more relaxed, particularly if you have the money, I would stay in a place called Benesse Art House on Naoshima Island. It is very expensive. For example, one person in a twin room will run you about 50,000 yen, which is about $450 for one night. That's what I'm talking about. But if you want to stay there, it is incredibly beautiful. It's on the Seto Inland Sea. To stay in an art museum, it's on my bucket list. I still haven't done it, but you get to go into the art museum connected to the hotel later than regular visitors. So I think it closes for people staying at the hotel at like 11 p.m. So if you ever wanted to relive Night at the Museum, this would be your shot. And also, Naoshima Island is absolutely enchanting. It's known now as the Art Island, and it was first envisioned by who else? a Japanese billionaire in the 1980s. And he approached an architect named Tado Ando, who is very famous in Japan, and asked him to start building art museums. And now you go museum hopping when you go there. And you also see a bunch of different famous art sculptures. Most famously, the pumpkin by Yayoi Kusama, who is famous around the world now for her polka dot paintings of all different kinds all different shapes and sizes. She's got at least two pumpkins now on the island that are covered in dots. And it's the number one Instagram photo on the island. I found it to be enchanting and, and cute. She's very famous now. And it's strange. It's quirky. What can I say? My favorite thing on the island was an art museum called Chichu. It's designed by Tato Ando. And a lot of it is underground. It plays with the sense of light in really interesting ways. I've actually documented my whole experience visiting Naoshima on my blog, but I would say that my most unforgettable moment of the day on Naoshima was being in Chichu Art Museum and first going to the James Terrell exhibit. The way James Terrell plays with light is fascinating, but then next to the James Terrell exhibit is the Monet Room, which at the time had six Monets in this immaculate room, the perfect temperature, underground, and you're just like, I'm on this random island in the middle of the inland sea in what feels like a remote part of Japan, and I'm just seeing these gorgeous expressions of human creativity in just the most peaceful setting I can imagine. It's beautiful. I, I really hope everybody can go there and check it out one day. 
and you will not be disappointed by any three of these places I've mentioned. You can make it a week, just these three places on their own. All right, listeners, let's move on to number three, Yakushima Island in Kyushu, Japan. To reach Yakushima, you will first have to fly to the city of Kagoshima. From Kagoshima, you can either take another 35-minute flight to Yakushima Airport or a two-hour and 20-minute ferry, give or take, from Kagoshima to the port on Yakushima Island. Yakushima is known for hiking. There's opportunities for snorkeling as well, but it's really all about the hiking on Yakushima Island. There is a mountain called Miyanora, which is actually the same name as the port that you come in on. When I went with my friend, we climbed Mount Miyanora and set up our whole hike around that. But the most famous place to visit on Yakushima Island is a nature park called Shiratani Unsuikyo. When you go to this nature park, you can take a short 15-minute walk through the area to see the Yakusugi. Now, Yaku is short for Hyaku, which is 100. And these cedar trees are over 100 years old. It's the oldest collection of cedar trees on the island. Most of the trees on the island are cedar trees. And there are a number of hiking trails you can take in this area, ranging from one to five hours. This nature park is particularly famous because a movie called Princess Mononoke by Hayao Miyazaki was inspired by this part of the island. And Princess Mononoke was the first film that really launched Hayao Miyazaki on an international scale. The lead artist who worked on Princess Mononoke came to this small part of Shirotani Unsyukyo, and he sat there for hours just sketching the scenery and memorizing every minute detail of this place. If you want to feel and relive parts of Princess Mononoke, come to Yakushima and you will definitely see where it all came from. I saw Princess Mononoke when I was still in high school, never even knowing I was going to live in Japan. But perhaps in some small way, I was inspired by this amazing film to come to this equally amazing island. Another thing you can't miss when you're hiking on Yakushima is Jomon Sugi. Now, I haven't mentioned this yet, but Sugi means cedar tree. And the Jomon Sugi is a giant cedar tree that dates all the way back to the Jomon period in Japan. It is estimated to be, and this is not an exaggeration, this is not a mistake, 7,200 years old. When I reached the Jomon Sugi, I am not kidding. I felt its energy. I felt this calming, healing energy coming directly from the tree and I'll never forget standing in front of it in silence and just feeling so grateful to be in front of something that old that had survived was still there giving its energy and all of its history to any hiker who had reached it. And it was just, oh, it's one of those unforgettable experiences in Japan that I hope you can have too. The other place I would recommend on the island is called Wilson's Kabu. Kabu means stump. There's actually another very large tree that was cut down at one point and you can go inside the stump and take photos and look out up at the sky. And it's a really cool experience because the tree was massive. You could probably fit a good 30 people in that stump. And I will never forget visiting. And 
I will say that it was quite it was quite an ordeal to organize our hiking trip without having a car. It would be best to rent a car on Yakushima. We had to catch buses that I'm not even kidding were at four in the morning. I remember well we got up at four in the morning. We had to go catch a bus, and then once we reached the final stop, we had to get a taxi in the middle of the night, like when it was still dark. And I remember the taxi driver being quite amused that these two girls were out there that early in the morning, telling him to just drop us off at this trailhead and he dropped us off in what looked like the middle of nowhere and we started hiking just as it was becoming light and uh we stayed one night on the island in a hut there are some huts at different points that don't have any staff there there's no facilities maintained but you can just stay inside this hut and I remember there were three Japanese men staying in another part of the hut with us one night and it was really wet. Yakushima gets so much rain throughout the year. So be prepared for wet weather hiking. But I remember we woke up with all of our stuff wetter than when we had gone to bed. And I was so excited that I was actually going to get it to dry. No luck in the humidity that is Yakushima Island. But I remember the smell of bacon that the men were cooking when we woke up that morning. And just uh, I think they did share a, a little bit with us and we were like why didn't we think of this bringing all the camping gear but we were just two city girls wanting our nature fix on Yakushima and we certainly got it and I highly recommend you to visit this island give yourself as much time as you can give maybe four nights on the island if you can there's a lot to see there and just a lot of nature to soak up oh Yakushima Island it's a place I definitely want to return to moving on to number two Mount Koya this is also in Wakayama Prefecture, the same as our number six, Kumano Kodo. So you might want to combine those two if you've got a lot of time and you're ready to do a hike and then get to this remote wooded area of Mount Koya. It's actually the headquarters of the Shingon School of Buddhism, and it is home to more than 100 temples and monasteries. So the thing to do when you visit Mount Koya is stay in what is known as a shukubo, or a temple lodging. The last time I checked, there were over 52 temples you could stay at and get a temple meal. There is a vegetarian cuisine that the temples will make for you. When my friend and I stayed there, we were served in our room, which as we mentioned in the last episode when we were talking about ryokans, that's quite a common thing in Japan when you stay at these types of places, but I have to recommend a place to you called Echoine, E-K-O-I-N. Echoine is one of the temples you can stay at, and a friend had recommended it to me when I went. When I checked at that time, I had to book my one night in this temple six months in advance, and I remember booking it for myself, not knowing if I would be going alone or not and just saying I'm doing it no matter what but I ended up having a friend join me and she split the costs and I was glad because it's not that cheap to stay in one of these shukubo so just check around based on your budget you don't have to stay at Echo Inn but one of the reasons I did was because Echoin is right next to the Okunoin Cemetery. It's one of the closest temples to the cemetery, which is also a must visit in Koya. And there is a night tour of the cemetery and it leaves from the front of Echoin. And it's run by an English speaking Japanese Buddhist monk. And he will take you to the mausoleum of the famous monk named Kukai 
also known as Kobodaishi. And when you go to Kobodaishi's mausoleum, he will stand in front of it and chant for a few minutes. Then he'll leave you and say, all right, enjoy the cemetery. And I've enjoyed being your tour guide. And you're like, wait, what? You're leaving us in a cemetery at night. But it's really a cool experience. There's a lot of cedar trees in the cemetery. I think over 250,000 graves. This place is massive, by the way. But there's also inside the cemetery, if you follow the walking paths, you'll end up at Tororo Hall, which has more than 10,000 eternally lit lanterns. Most people will come during the day. I actually encourage you to do both. It's such a cool experience, and I've never done anything else like it anywhere in the world. Echo Inn, also where we stayed, not only did we get a wonderful vegetarian meal in our room, We also got to attend an hour of Zen meditation with the monks on site, and they do speak English. They will do their best. They're used to tourists visiting them. And then we also, early in the morning, we only stayed one night, but I think at like 7 a.m., we got to see a fire ceremony that the monks did where they lit a fire and chanted in front of it. It's a popular ceremony to attend at Echoine. So you get a lot of experience for your money there. Walk around this beautiful mountain and definitely visit Okunoin Cemetery. To get to Mount Koya, it's easiest to find your way to Osaka, whether it's from the Osaka airport or coming in on the bullet train from Tokyo. It's about 90 minutes by train from Osaka to Mount Koya. Once you get to a station called Gokorabashi, you then need to take a cable car, up, which is about five minutes, up to Mount Koya. And once you get there, you then take a 10 to 15 minute bus to Echoine, or maybe it's shorter if you're staying at a different temple. So it's a journey, but as all the places on my list, it's well worth it. Such a collection of places in one country. So without further ado, this brings me to, drumroll please, my number one experience in Japan that you have to, I really hope you get to experience once in your life. And these are the two islands of Rishiri and Rebun off the coast of Wakanai, Hokkaido, Japan. To get to these islands, you first need to get to Wakanai, which I think it's easiest to take a flight directly from Tokyo. It's not far. It's probably about two hours, two hours and 10 minutes on the plane. And then from Wakanai, you need to take a ferry. And you can do this in a couple of ways. You could take a direct ferry to Rebun, which is about two hours and five minutes. It's about the same amount of time to go first to Rishiri. And to take a ferry between Rebun and Rishiri is about an hour. So when I went, again, I did this trip by myself. And I tell you that because hey, I'm here to inspire you. If you don't think anyone else is going to join you on a trip like this, you can do it yourself. It's all right. And even without speaking Japanese, you should be able to handle this. So I flew to Wakanai and I should start by saying, please take this trip only in July or August because it will be far too freezing to do it 
any other time. I flew to Wakanai. I stayed one night in Wakanai. The next morning, I took a ferry to Rashidi for two hours and got onto a bus immediately that was a day trip of Rashiri, basically. Now, you can hike Mount Rashiri, which is also known as Rashidi Fuji because it looks a lot like Mount Fuji, but I didn't have enough time to do that. I was only on a five-day, four-night trip from Tokyo, so I decided that my focus was going to be Rebun. So I did a day trip. It was really nice. I still got nice photos of Mount Rashidi. And then the bus took us back to Rashiri Port, and I got another one hour ferry to Rebun. When I got to Rebun, this crazy looking hippie bus was waiting for me. You need to book two nights at this place called Momo Iwaso, which means rock that looks like a peach. Now, this is all on my blog, tokyobeki.com, but I will say that to book this place, you have to call the number and tell them that you want a recommendation. I'm not sure at the moment how much English there is when you call them. If not, you may need to get a friend that speaks Japanese to do this for you, or even reach out on Facebook, see if you've got anybody, any friends who speak Japanese that can help you do this. Once you get your reservation secured, they will wait for you at the port. And I was picked up along with two Japanese women who were at least in their 60s, which kind of surprised me because I thought it's a hostel, younger people will be staying there. But apparently this hostel has been around for over 50 years and it's by far the oldest hostel in Hokkaido from what I understand. It's kind of run like what feels like a summer camp. So a guy put us in the van and he starts driving along and I think it was about a 20 minute drive and along the way he sees a foreign guy along the side of the road and he picks him up and that guy ended up becoming my best friend at the hostel for the weekend. So I was glad that he picked him up. He was a French Canadian traveling in Japan for the last few months as a student. As we get to the hostel we drive through a tunnel and the drive tells us, forget love, forget time, forget everything because you're at the Momo Iwaso. And he wasn't completely wrong because the, the hostel has its own time zone, which they chose on their own. So it's very confusing. When we get to this hostel, there are three very enthusiastic staff members who we open the door to find and they are yelling hello to us and welcoming us with a rubber chicken which was quite strange. And we're checked into this place. I'm in a eight bed dorm room. You're like looking at signs on the wall at the hostel saying, Momo Iwaso time is this actual time is this and you're like what I think it's an hour time difference but they run on their time. So when your hike starts the next day, you have to make sure you're going by Momo Iwaso time. And we checked in before sunset and we found out when the sun sets at this place, you're meant to go outside with everybody on staff and listen to the staff sing to the sun as it sets. I've never done that before or after, but it was quite an entertaining and strange experience, especially when you can't understand everything that they're doing in Japanese. That evening, you meet the people that are going to go with you on your 12-hour hike the next day. And I definitely signed up for that because I wanted to see as much of this island as I could and experience it in the Momo Iwaso way. The way they do it is they have a huge poster and they go through all the different parts of the hike as part of their evening performance that the hostel does every night at 7 p.m. There's dancing, there's folk songs, you're meant to sing and dance along, and it's run like a talent show. They appoint one person of the group of guests that are going as the leader and then a second guest as the sub-leader. The staff do not go with you. You go as a group and you're going to figure out this hike by yourself. 
ourselves the next day. I just remember we get those people appointed. They make us pack lunches, which is quite nice. I think you opt to pay extra for that. And the staff will drive you to the trailhead at five in the morning, six in the morning, and you hike all day with the people from the hostel that are there. I was the only non-Korean Japanese. That was very interesting. Like everybody was so friendly. We stopped whenever we wanted as a group. We, We saw little kids on the side of the mountain playing baseball and drying squid and just so many amazing rural remote scenes of this island in Hokkaido. I just remember coming back, we were almost done with our hike, and we suddenly start hearing the singing. And we realize that the staff of our hostel have climbed onto the roof, and they're singing us in to the hostel. So they're singing for at least 20 minutes as we get closer and closer to the building. And they start clapping and cheering when we get there. And we're praised and sung and danced to that night at the nightly performance of the hostel. And I just remember like, I've never been in such a strange place. It felt like a weird, energetic family that I was very happy to meet, but couldn't put up with for probably more than two nights, if I'm being honest. I'll never forget when we left the next day, we were put into a truck and we're seeing the hostel get farther and farther away. And whenever any group of people leave the hostel, they ask you to come outside and say goodbye to the people leaving. But it's not a normal goodbye. It's you say goodbye, the van or the truck says goodbye. You say goodbye again, they say goodbye, and you keep saying it back and forth until you can't see the truck anymore. Even after you can't hear the response, you keep saying goodbye. And we were out there for 30 minutes, I'm not even joking. When I was in the truck leaving and we reached the port, we get onto the boat and all of the staff, plus some of the guests that have decided to come and say goodbye to us, they start saying goodbye again and they're saying goodbye. We're saying goodbye on the boat. They're saying goodbye on the port. The boat's pulling away. We're still saying goodbye. People are staring at me on the boat like, why are you yelling goodbye to a group of people on the port? You know, this was all of the people who stayed on Rebu, not just the hostel cult. And suddenly the the people from our hostel that were staff members, they start dancing and singing wildly and maniacally on the port as we're getting farther and farther away, almost like to make sure we could still hear them. And they sing and dance for a solid 20 minutes as we pull away. And I think they do this every day. I think it's almost like a show they put on. It's really the most unforgettable experience, the most wildly maddening, crazy three days I ever had in Japan. I felt like I had gone to a different planet. I hope you can get to that hostel one day. I would come to Japan and honestly try to spend three weeks if you can. Maybe once when you come to Japan, don't even go to Tokyo or Kyoto, just use it as a transit city to get to these places on my list. Some of them are expensive, accommodation especially. You get caught up with some expensive food sometimes as well. I think there's a reason why a lot of people haven't been to these places. I did take all of these 10 trips over the course of 10 years, so it took me time. But if any of these appealed to you, make it your focus the next time you come to Japan and I promise you you won't be disappointed and I hope it makes for absolutely unforgettable memories. Thank you for sticking with me this long. I hope that all of this has been beneficial to you. I will put a link to my blog tokyobeki.com so you can see photos from a lot of these places that I mentioned. Not everything is there but there are quite a few and I just hope that you get to come to Japan and you get to enjoy this 
beautiful country one day. And if you have any questions, reach out to me on Instagram at the School of Travels or the schooloftravels.com website. Happy to answer questions for you about these trips. Have a wonderful week, listeners. Thanks for listening to the School of Travels podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to The Sam Chase for allowing us to use their song, In a Perfect World. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode, and remember to always let travel be your teacher. If you keep your options open, there are places you will go. They will treat you like the kings and queens your parents thought you'd be when you were born. You'd see it all with your head up standing tall, and you'd look back and think it's funny how you spent your time and money.